Hi, everyone. Welcome to the February 19th, 2021 edition of Colorado Inside Out. I'm your host, Dominic Dizzuti. Thank you much, very much for joining us. Uh, as I've always said about the show, if you could catch the first five minutes that we can't legally air, it's always the most interesting. I'm really saddened that we couldn't share the first five minutes of this one, but uh, trust me, you, you missed one heck of a show. But we think we can probably deliver another great 26 minutes right here. We're going to give it our best shot. First up, Governor Jared Polis delivered his State of the State address on Wednesday. The speech uh, In the speech, Governor Polis highlighted his proposed changes to the state budget, including two health care reform bills, broadband access in rural areas, and better roads. He also announced the proposal of a $1 billion economic stimulus package to help Colorado businesses recover from the pandemic. Patty Calhoun from Westward, uh, we've covered a lot about COVID, and certainly Governor Polis covered a lot of COVID in the speech. Was there anything else uh, that stood out to you as noteworthy? Well, you did promise me a COVID-free first item, and of course, you could not avoid COVID <laughs> if you're talking about the state of the state. I think Jared Polis gave a good reason to speech. He gave some interesting quotes. He quoted from Ecclesiastes. He did have to talk about COVID, and he talked about a lot of the heroes of the pandemic, the first responders, the people who have kept life in Colorado that we love going as close as it can be to the, to the, to the state we love. He did a, I thought he did a very good job. He will have probably less trouble than Congress working on his economic stimulus plan. He is going to have some, uh, some fights with the two houses, both being under Democrats. But the issue is not going to be so much where people are on progressive, the progressive scale. It's going to be where they are on the budget because he still has to have a balanced budget in the state. So you cannot go hog wild as you come up with pr proposals. We'll see something on transportation. It's going to be hard to predict exactly how it'll come out. But I do think we will see that stimulus package. He didn't talk about the unemployment snafus, which are major and will definitely take up a lot of time over the next few months. David Kopel from the Independence Institute and DU Law School. Uh, state of the State speeches, like State of the Union speeches, are just a speech. I mean, we, we get something from them, but uh, Governor Polis seemed to stay on brand, putting not only Ecclesiastes, but I think Jean-Luc Picard, so that's yes. kind of his thing. Yeah. Uh, beyond those quotations, did we get anything of value from the speech? Well, one thing, even in the theatrical sense, one thing of value, this was started by Reagan, I think, in his 1982 or so State of the Union, is, is bringing in different American heroes, calling them out, having them stand up. And, on, and, he, and Governor Polis had a good collection of, of heroes. And one of them was uh, uh, Larimer County Sheriff Justin Smith, who was outstanding. The sheriffs are the chief fire wardens in their counties, and, and Sheriff Smith worked very hard and effectively in fighting the fires. And Sheriff Smith is also a outspoken conservative Republican who disagrees with Governor Polis on a lot of policy issues. Um, that's a different approach than, than Governor Hickenlooper took in the past, who when, when Smith sued him over the uh, his gun bans, uh, Hickenlooper absolutely just uh, put him as public enemy um, number one. So that was a nice change in tone. There's a, as the governor said, there's a structural deficit in the state, in my view, caused by excessive spending. But he says, even though we got a structural deficit, he wants to do this billion-dollar stimulus package. And I think happily, uh, leadership on both sides, uh, House Speaker Garnett and Senator uh, Bob Rankin from Carbondale, is saying, no, before we go on a spending spree of new stuff, 
put back the money that we borrowed in the first place, like from the public employees' retirement accounts uh, and from the other cash funds, which are supposed to be segregated funds to pay for specific things. Those things ought to be fixed before we worsen the deficit uh, by new spending. Natasha Gardner, freelance journalist, joins us again. Natasha, it's great to have you on the show. you know, Governor Polis has been pretty influential when it comes to guiding uh, the legislature. Different governors decide how they're going to uh, show their influence with the legislature. He seems to be fairly influential. Did we get any signs from his speech that show where he might want the legislature to go this session? Absolutely. I mean, I think that's the biggest or one of the biggest points of these type of speeches is to set some priorities um, for the coming months. In this case, you know, the the overarching conversation will be the question of the budget. Now, we're going to get some more information about that in March, about the forecast of where things are at. We do know that things weren't maybe as bad as we initially thought. And I'm thinking back to those optimistic um, days of, of last April and May, where there are lots of news stories about, oh, what kind of alphabet soup recovery will we have? Will it look like a V or will it look like a W? Well, we still don't know what that letter is, but we do know more about how the the impact of the first half of, of this um, crisis, the economic crisis related to the pandemic has looked. And so the governor and the legislatures will have to address that. One key thing that I heard him mention, which I think I'm going to keep a close eye on, is access to broadband. This has been a topic for years. And certainly in this pandemic, we have seen how vital access to internet is for for students attending school. Um, I I mean, even something like the census and having access to that for people to fill it out in a a quick and timely fashion. There's so many things that need broadband access at this point that it has become um, such an essential part of our day-to-day, much like roads or clean water or electricity is. So I'm going to keep an eye on that one. I think we'll be hearing more about that throughout the session. And rounding out the panel, joining us remotely, Penfield Tate, attorney with Tate Law. Thanks for being here, Penn. You know, as a former state lawmaker, you have, and I'm not sure the right words endured, but you have witnessed quite a few state-of-the-state addresses. Uh, how did this one rank, and what do, what do lawmakers need to take away from this, if anything? You know, I, I think Governor Polis does a good job with his state-of-the-state addresses. Um, and he does probably, as well as any governor I've seen, what the General Assembly really wants, and that is a clear signal or indication about what his priorities are, what he wants to work on, so that that lets you get a sense of the parameters in terms of what's going to drive the legislative agenda. Every one of the 100 legislators has got the ability to to introduce five bills, and so you've got potentially 500 different um, points of interest but uh, most of them die in committee. And, and clearly what the governor wants to do is going to be front and center because um, he has the, the one vote on the first floor. It's, it's 33 in the House, uh, 18 in the Senate, and one on the first floor to get something done. So his one vote is important. Um, one thing I, I do agree on that's going to be important to watch, and it's the point Natasha raised, it's interesting how what goes around comes around. 30 years ago, Roy Romer proposed a concept of the state actually investing in either a fiber network or something that would have brought um, better access to rural Colorado to be able to get on the information highway. And Republicans who controlled the legislature then thought it was too expensive. 
thought that government shouldn't be involved in that and wanted to leave it to the private sector after we'd already seen the private sector was not willing in making that investment in certain communities. So it'll be interesting to see how that trickles the session. The Colorado State Justice Department has found itself in the spotlight as it responds to allegations of sexism, misconduct, and harassment. On Thursday, State Supreme Court Chief Justice Brian Boatwright delivered an emotional speech vowing to make any changes necessary in order to help rebuild trust in the branch's leadership. David, we start with you on this one. What did you think of Justice, Chief Justice Boatwright's comments and the work that has to get done? Well, the, the, the words will, were fine. Let, let's see about the actions. Part of this comes out of a uh, employee, uh, the former chief of staff for the state court administrator's office, who says, I'm going to blow the whistle on 20 cases of sexual harassment and misconduct and things like that. And she ends up instead not blowing the whistle, but she got a $2.75 million conduct uh, to do uh, training within the judicial branch. Um, uh, Senate Minority Leader Chris Holbert, I think, struck the right tone or said the right thing by saying that the justices in their independent review that they're uh, trying to set up should not try to solve a top-down. They should try to get information from the, the rank-and-file working people, the, the entry-level employees. This is symptomatic of a long-standing problem in Colorado of the judiciary shutting itself off from public scrutiny. Colorado is one of the worst states in the country uh, for public access to uh, court records, uh, and that was upheld recently in a unanimous decision by the Colorado Supreme Court. And so now for the third year in a row, Representative Polly Lawrence is sponsoring a bill to make sure that all uh, court administrative and budget records uh, do come under, fully come under the Open Records Act. Natasha, let's follow up with you on this one. As a freelance journalist, a long-time journalist here in Colorado, uh, do you think there's going to be more openness from the judicial branch in Colorado? Well, I think time will tell on on that particular issue. Um, it certainly seems like there should be. And kudos to the Denver Post for reporting on this this story, which has been revealing itself over the last several days and, and, and into weeks, but also something they've been working on for years. So for them to continue to follow this, to to look into it, and to bring it to light, it's so important. You know, I think at at any day we probably could all use a refresher on civics, but the last four months in particular seems like a day to day lesson on the importance of how this country is founded and how our, our parts of the government work together and how we also maintain and ensure and improve upon those systems. I think this is a moment for Colorado to look at what's happening currently and to make some changes. Because yes, this is about fixing what may have gone wrong, but also making a better system for the future. So hopefully, as they go through this independent investigation, we can do that, both repair what has happened in, in whatever way that we can, but also look towards building a better system. Pam, before the show we were talking, I, had even, I didn't have any idea that the Chief Justice comes out every year to have his own version, his or her own version of State of the State Address. Uh, you have actually seen them as a former lawmaker. Uh, what did you think of Chief Justice Boatwright's comments? And also, I guess the, the work that has to get done, is this a bigger problem than we may realize at this point? Uh, you know, there, there is the State of the Judiciary Address um, annually before the legislature after the State of the State. So we've we've seen chief justices um, give this address year after year. Typically, uh, it focuses on their legislative priorities 
and and their budgetary priorities. We uh, and Natasha raises a good point about the civics aspect of this. Remember that the judicial branch is the third co-equal branch of government, both um, in a state and nationally, with the executive and the legislative. So you know the executive implements laws, the legislative passes them, but the judiciary interprets the laws that are passed and put into place. So their role is is vital. David's correct. The judicial branch is typically one that does not operate with a lot of transparency. But um, I, I thought the Chief Justice did what he had to do and deal with this very candidly and say, we have problems, we need to fix them. Depending upon the depth of the investigation, from what I'm hearing, there are also going to be issues about um, hiring practices within the, the judicial department, um, a lack of diversity within both the administrative offices, and there's always been an issue about a lack of diversity on our various um, benches and courts um, around the state. So uh, it, I, I think judicial branch is going to be in the headlights for quite a while here. Patty, uh, Westford's done more than their fair share of uh, uh, open records requests. Do you think we're going to get more openness from the judicial branch now that we've heard from Chief Justice Boatwright? Probably, but they'll do it kicking and screaming. Uh, let's continue the civics lesson. So you're talking about the three branches of government. Then the fourth estate. David referred to the good work by the Denver Post, and uh, Natasha did too. David Magoya has been following this for so long, and the fact is he got access to a memo that if he hadn't been at the Denver Post, if he hadn't been there for a long time, had these relationships, this story might not have broken. Um, the Denver Gazette has been following it, too. But really, kudos to the Post, which is still going through a hard time. We see um, Alden Global just wound up buying the Tribune, and of course, that's reminding everyone of just how decimated the Denver Post newsroom has become, and somehow Alden had enough money to buy the Tribune, where it'll probably do the same thing. So we have to recognize when journalists are out there doing great work, we would never have heard about this if Magoya hadn't been on that story for so long. It appears Denver Mayor Michael Hancock is off the hook regarding his Thanksgiving travels, at least when it comes to the ethics complaint filed recently. This week, the Denver Board of Ethics voted unanimously to dismiss the complaint filed against Hancock for traveling to see family shortly after advising citizens to stay home. Natasha, we start with you on this one. Uh, yes, the ethics complaint is over. I'm sure Mayor Hancock is happy to see that. Uh, but is this a uh, part of his legacy that he will not be able to shake regardless of an ethics complaint decision? Yes, I think Denverites will remember this as a, as a moment during um, this pandemic um, that is is definitely historic. You know, I, I think that on a political spectrum, Ted Cruz and Michael Hancock couldn't be further apart, except on the issue of taking personal travel in the middle of a pandemic. Senator Ted Cruz, of course, made the other poor choice of doing that when his state was in a complete crisis. Um, so I guess uh, they're, they're slightly different, but this is turning into something that seems to be repeated where politicians say, um, do what I say, but not what I do. And that is something I do think that um, the constituents that they represent care about. I don't think it was a huge surprise that the ethics um, board looked at this and said, um, you know, looking strictly at the, the rules as they're listed, um, this isn't a violation. But they were clear to say that they did not condone the travel as well. So I don't think that this is something that Denverites will forget anytime soon. Penn, is this issue over for Mayor Hancock? You know, I, I think it's over in the sense that his, his time in office is almost up. 
but I, I think it sets the stage in terms of how people view things. You know, we talked about this before when it first came down, and I think we all agreed it probably wasn't an ethics bi violation, but what it was is what, um, you know, the mayor admitted to, it was, uh, you know, profound bad judgment. And unfortunately, Denver citizens have seen too much profound bad judgment, both with this personal travel, both with the Great Hall project that was doomed from the start, and after three years and multi-millions of dollars, the, the administration acknowledged it just didn't have the competence or aptitude to, to pull the project off. And now with the scuttling of a major part of the National Western Project that was hailed as, as was going to be one of the legacies of this administration, and now it's, it's being challenged also. And it just tells, you know, people just continue to wonder, how can the city keep surviving with so much um, exercise of bad judgment? Patty, does this decision at least clear the way to focus on other issues, or does it linger for a while? No. I mean, it's going to linger forever. This is going to be what people remember Michael Hancock for, for the most part in this state, um, unless he does something that's more stupid. I mean, this is one, it was unforgivable in a city and a state where people were making so many sacrifices because of the pandemic. And the fact that that tweet went out reminding everyone to stay home right before he got on his plane in the airport that has been incredibly screwed up for the last, oh, many years, as, as Penn pointed out, People are going to remember that. They just do not forget. And it's not like this is a little blip. The pan, you know, everyone had a cold for a week. This is we're going on a year with this pandemic, and people are just not going to forget. David, sadly, there seems to be a growing Hall of Fame, at least in this you know, uh, current time period, of politicians finding their way into situations like this. I saw a tweet that said, you know, had Mayor Hancock apologizing for this and Ted Cruz saying, hold my boarding pass as he <laughs> does his situation. So uh, is this something that lingers and the things that we'll be talking about when it comes to Mayor Hancock moving forward? Well, at least Mayor Cruz, uh, Ted Cruz didn't say don't go to Mexico because it's too dangerous. Um, it, it's not a violation of the ethics code to be completely hypocritical and incompetent. Um, but it, what he did was at least a violation of the spirit of the ethics code, which states that its intent is for city employees to act with high levels of ethical conduct, honesty, integrity, and accountability so that the public will have confidence that persons in positions of public responsibility are acting for the benefit of the public. You know, if he actually believed his words about how dangerous uh, air travel supposedly is, then he wouldn't have endangered his security detail by having them uh, escort him to the airport. Let's get a quick take on this last one. The city of Denver is facing another lawsuit, this time from a man who lost an eye during the George Floyd protest last summer. His injury occurred when he was shot in the face by a non-lethal police projectile. The city has now faced more than five claims for injuries to protesters caused by excessive force. Ben, we start with you on this one. Uh, do you see a settlement coming out of this? I mean, we've seen that a lot from the city of Denver, uh, but this being the fifth one, uh, I don't know how many of these they can really endure. What do you think are the next steps we'll see? Dominic, I think we'll see a settlement, and it's just the continuation of a disturbing trend. Um, during this administration, how many excessive force cases have we seen settled or resolved, um, and most of which could have and should have been avoided, not just with better training, but with the exercise of common sense. So this is a recurrent theme. We even saw uh, a journalist who was assaulted uh, in front of City Hall for taking a picture of how the police were dealing with uh, an unhoused um, person. So 
this will be settled. It's just it's it's it just shows that the exercise of bad judgment when it's exhibited at the top sort of filters through the rest of um, city operations. Patty, five claims aren't a dozen, but it's not nothing. There, there, there's something here. Do you think this uh, might be just a tip of an iceberg for us? Well, we still have a few months in which those can be filed. If you looked at Nick Mitchells, the independent monitor who just left Denver, but his report that he looked into the five days, the first five days of protests and the responses, and there's no question that there were problems in the Denver Police Department that led to the ability to do this kind of thing. You, they had a lot of people helping from different law enforcement agencies. They weren't under the same rules. They didn't actually know who, they don't know, I think, who fired this. But these protesters were kneeling, and this guy got hit in the eye by a an, an allegedly less lethal munition that should never have been shot off. So we will see a settlement in this. We'll probably see a few more suits coming in, too. David, uh, do you think we'll see more suits like this moving forward? Uh, as the others say, very, very possibly. Um, but this one, I think you can tell, is a, a pretty solid suit because the, one of the plaintiff's lawyers is, is Matthew Crone, who's a uh, very experienced and, and respected civil rights attorney who, who's won a lot of big verdicts. And kudos to Channel 7, by the way, for linking to the actual complaint so people could see it. And a, according to that p- complaint, there was no aggression going on by the protesters in, in the, the group that, that, that Mr. Strong was in uh, when he was shot. A, a complication in this is that the complaint itself says, actually, we don't know, not only do we not know the particular officer who fired it, uh, but he probably was not even necessarily working for the Denver Police Department because it was a type of munition munition that Denver Police Department doesn't use. So it might have been somebody from Aurora. Natasha, wrap it up for us. Do you think we're going to see uh, maybe even a different response from the city of Denver when it deals with these kinds of issues? Yes, I think so. And I I think that's what the department is working towards. And hopefully and and rightfully so, that should be what happened. I mean, this has sort of been a theme today is is how do we improve this country and the state and this city? And this is something that mistakes were made and and they need to be fixed so that these situations don't occur in the future. On a broader scope, I I just also want to point out that that what happened this summer with the protests, with the Black Lives Matter movement after George Floyd's um, murder, those situations, what led to those moments have not been resolved. We we haven't come to a point where we have solutions in place in our country where we're, we're really um, have addressed these concepts. So if anything, these continuing conversations helps bring it to the forefront to make sure that the reasons that they were there protesting that night um, and over those days and over those weeks um, do not need to continue to happen. Let's get to our favorite part of the show, Disgrace of the Week. As always, Patty, please start us off. Well, return to the legislature where today Representative Holtorf told Tom Sullivan whose son was killed at the Aurora Theater shootings essentially to get over it. David. The legislature has a bill to crack down on uh, the county commissioners by saying that a county board of public health its leaders can never be fired unless they neglect their duties. So they would, in a sense, be immune from the control of the elected people of the county. And would likewise say that in, in small counties where uh, uh, the health board duties are often performed by, the, by commissioners themselves, that would be prohibited again. The bottom line of that is the Colorado Department of Health, which doesn't have, has only limited authority to issue orders, depends on the counties to 
use their actual legal authority to duplicate and carry out what the Department of Health wants. And since they won't go along with the Big Brother, there's an attempt to, to in, in some ways unconstitutionally, uh, perhaps, uh, crack down on county uh, autonomy. Natasha, we go to you for your disgrace of the week. Yes, on January 29th, Governor Polis released some adjustments to the vaccine rollout, including um, some moves that were very much lauded in um, the press, as rightfully so. I'm not here to to argue those. Um, personally, I hope that everyone has equitable access to the vaccine as soon as possible. My concern were with some of the groups that were both pushed down and, in fact, removed. Um, there used to be more general immunosuppressed um, group that was included in the vaccine rollout that's no longer there. It's been replaced by more specific conditions, but there are many conditions that aren't listed there. Um, and as a journalist who asks a lot of questions, I can't help but do that. And, and I have questions about what happens to a family that has an immunosuppressed child. What happens to someone who's been battling cancer, but finished their treatments in December? What happens to somebody who has a lung disease that's not listed on the list right there now? I hope that this is a work in progress and that they will continue to address some of those groups that may not be currently listed but that would benefit from early access to the vaccine. Penn, we go to you next. Um, You know, I I think this falls into the category of bad judgment, but the state representative, Ron Hanks, who was, um, uh, to my knowledge, the only Colorado elected official who went to Washington, D.C. to participate in what became the riot, uh, to stand with the supporters of the, the former president. Um, just not a good look, and I think it'll have ongoing repercussions this legislative session. Time to say something nice about somebody. Patty? Nick Murder, who, who took into his own hands, which the state hasn't been able to do, he created Vaccine Finder for all the people who are having so much trouble finding appointments. There may not be any open, but at least you'll know. David? There's a nonprofit in Colorado Springs called the Independence Center, and they are distributing masks uh, that have a, a clear space in them so that someone you're talking to can see your lips move. And that is great for people who, who are hard of hearing or, or deaf. And it's also actually great for teachers who are teaching students who have learning disabilities where the audio isn't enough for them, and being able to see, see the face uh, helps a lot. They're here. Natasha? Well, the groundhog saw his shadow earlier this month, and um, so did uh, the Mars rover, Perseverance. I mean, talk about a major win. I think anyone loves some good news right now, but this is such an incredible feat. So congratulations to everyone involved with sending the Perseverance to Mars. We're here. Penn, we go to you. Uh, Just a shout out to a number of the nonprofits in our community, particularly a number of the churches who have worked with um, the state and other health organizations to get um, allocations of the vaccine and have been working through their own independent networks, whether it be their parishioners or friends of their parishioners, to get the vaccine distributed as quickly as possible to as many people as possible. It's not something they had to do, but the fact that they stood up and decided it needed to be done and they're following through with it is something that should be commended. Well, for some of our audience, it's a disgrace of the week. For some of our audience, it's to say something nice. But uh, Rush Limbaugh's passing reminded me that way back in the early 90s, the Rush Limbaugh television show was actually something that was on uh, KBDI, PBS 12 back then. And we actually had T-shirts because we pledged it because, well, why not? Uh, um, a, a legacy, uh, love more or hate them, certainly a legacy that uh, uh, is undeniable as we uh, go into uh, what is <laughs> now a completely affected in different time than 
it was in the early 90s. For everybody here at PBS 12 and Colorado Inside Out, I'm Dominic Tizzuti. Thank you so much for joining us. Good night.